Radio. Hi, I'm Carol. And I'm Holly. And we are the hosts of Fireside Phantoms. On our podcast, we will delight in telling you stories of the strange, twisted, dark, and foreboding. Creepy, crawly things slinking up your leg. Ghostly hands reaching out from beyond the grave. And we will ask hard-hitting questions like, Can Slender Man fit into my skinny jeans? Who is Wrinkles the Clown? And how can he make your child's next birthday party special? Why shouldn't we invite the black-eyed kids in? What really is going on at your creepy neighbor's house? And is it okay to peek inside? And many, many more. So join us and our forest friends as we gather around a warm and crackling campfire. This is Fireside Phantoms. Hey, hey, how's everybody doing? Welcome to part two of the Cray Twins. Before we get going, I do have to thank some new Patreon subscribers. We got James Herr, Jason Rockwell, and Michelle L. Thank you guys very much. I hope you're enjoying that backlog. James Herr, you're in that top tier, bro, so get a hold of me, you know, so we can set up that Skype call. Justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com. Same goes for the rest of you top tier Patreon subscribers as well. Before we get going, the music featured in this episode is none other than Ace King. He's an Indiana rapper, and he is the son of a long, long time listener, Christina. She's been a part of my Facebook group, been an active listener for years. So huge thanks to Christina for setting that up for me. And Ace King, I'm a fan, dude. (laughs) I love your music. I love the vibes. And for those of you who don't like rap, I'm just going to tell you right now, If I hear you bitching about it, I'm going to call you a fucking idiot for not hitting the forward button. Alright, simple as that. The songs, the first one being featured is going to be called Lights, Camera, Action. The one at the end of the episode is called Underdog. They had the perfect vibe for this episode, and I had to use them. So, anybody can go to the show notes, and I will post a link to his content. You can find it pretty much anywhere as well, so I hope you guys enjoy, and uh, I haven't checked reviews in a couple weeks, really haven't felt like it, so probably wait to do reviews until the end of part three. So, without further ado, my name is Justin, this is Mysterious Circumstances, and you're listening to The Cray Twins, part two. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. As we always said, if you want to be treated like a lady, you'd be speaking to a villain. I've, I mean, I've been invited to lots of Chelsea parties with Hooray Henrys. I've heard language that I would never, ever hear when I was out with Ronnie and Reggie Craig. God, there'd be one look from his eyes if anyone dared to swear in front of his mother or his aunt 
or myself or any other lady in his presence. There's the graveyards. They get into the graveyard before a body was put in the hole. They put a body in the hole, put some earth on top, a new coffin would come in on top. They double up in the coffins at the funeral parlour. The murders that were committed simply to assert themselves as gang leaders. There was no other reason for it. In the East End, the law that was enforced was often the law of the Cray Twins. There were lots of people that walking into pubs and protection money was being asked for. It's better to go and ask Ronnie and Reggie Cray, could you just appear for ten minutes or have one or two drinks in our pub on a Saturday night? Once it was known as a pub that the Crays used, then that publican didn't have any more trouble. The twins ran that part of London like an iron rod. There was nothing that went on in that East End that they didn't know about. If there was a wrongdoing, get off the manor, because they would come down on you like a ton of bricks. To succeed at something like the twins have succeeded at, on the scale that they have succeeded, you can't do it without a hint of violence. Violence begot violence. They knew it paid off. So, being twins, the craze, everybody feared them. I ain't seeing you, but you be seeing me. You can tell by how I walk that I've been getting to this cheese. And when I hit that stage, bitch, all eyes be all on me. Yeah, that ice stay all on me. Get them lights, yeah, all on me. Hey, I ain't be seeing you, but you be seeing me. You can tell by how I walk that I've been getting to this cheese. And when I hit that stage, bitch, all eyes be all on me. Yeah, that ice stay all on me. Get them lights, yeah, all on me. Hey, hold up, wait a minute. Let me put some pep to your step. It's Ace King, nigga. KMG is what I fucking rep. You know Vegas on my right, be wide on my fucking left. Middle finger to the other side, some niggas know that we the best. Why your niggas been playing checkers? Me, my niggas been playing chess. These little niggas. All right, so we're gonna pick up in the 1964-1965 era. All right, the craze are—I mean—they're on top of the world right now. They literally have like a celebrity type status. They have legitimate businesses, and they're running like a lot of criminal activities, you know, extortion, protection rackets, gambling rackets, like all kinds of shit. But before we go forward, we have to jump back in time a little bit, and we have to talk about a woman named Frances Shea. Her father is a guy named Frank Shea, who he ran the gambling at the Regency Club, which is the club that the craze owned and ran, and this was in uh, Stoke Newington. This is pretty much how Reggie ended up meeting her when she was a little bit younger. Her brother, Frank Shea Jr., also occasionally worked for the Twins. He was a driver. They gave him some other opportunities to make money here and there as well. So in 1960, Reggie and Francis are in a relationship, okay, and this is right after she left high school. Um, She worked at a place called The Strand in a clerical job. Now, Reggie actually proposed to her in 1961 at Steeple Bay in Essex, and she had just turned 18, and he was 27 at the time. And she turned down his proposal because she thought that she was too young for marriage at the time. So in February of 1965, Reggie took her to Barcelona and Milan, and he proposed to her again, and this time she accepted So on April 19th, 1965, Francis and Reggie were married, and they were married at St. James, the Great Church at Bethnal Green, when Francis was 22 and Reggie was 31. Uh, The first priest refused to marry them. His name was Father Hetherington. In 1970, looking back, he said, quote, 
Not merely was there not the faintest hope of either of them finding happiness together, but I could see them causing serious harm to one another. That was the priest that refused to to marry them. So they asked the second priest, and he did accept, all right? There was a shitload of people at the wedding. It was very well documented. Lots of photographs online, if you want to look at it. Lots of members of the firm were there. Cray family, the Lee family, you know, Charlie Cray, his son Gary were there. Like, pretty much everybody, okay? And it was described as the East End Wedding of the Year. Partly because this was, you know, Reggie Cray. I mean, he was celebrity status, badass gangster in the East End, and he's got this young 21-year-old bride who's just amazing to people, right? So Ronnie ended up being the best man. And one of the one of the stories is that uh during the ceremony, okay, there was some there were some hymns and shit like that being sang, you know, it's a wedding or whatever. But when members of the firm would go up and down the aisles and they noticed people weren't singing or they weren't singing good enough, they would straight up walk up to him and be like, Reggie wants you to sing. People are just like, Okay, you know, I'll I'll sing I'll sing better, I'll sing louder. Congratulations. But Francis's mother Elsie was fiercely opposed to this wedding she did not want her daughter to have absolutely anything to do with any of the cray twins any of the firm any of these people okay and she married the guy like reggie cray and she protested it so much that she actually wore black to the ceremony so after the wedding there's this huge reception And like I said, there's all kinds of pictures and all that shit uh, all floating around. Just look on the internet. You'll find them. For their honeymoon, they went to the Athens Hotel. And unfortunately, Reggie went out drinking most of the night. He left his wife in the hotel room. And this is one of the things you're going to find out about their relationship. It was not peaches and cream. It was by her um, own narrative. She actually wrote a bunch of shit in her diary that was just recently sold off in auction within the past uh, few years. And it was not a very good marriage, all right? Now, if you ask Reggie, it was great. Francis had already, according to him, had already had some prior spouts with depression and she never really seemed happy but according to other people i mean including her it was just absolutely horrible she felt like a prisoner i mean she even told stories in her diaries about how reggie would sleep with an arsenal right beside his bed like the dude would have a knife under his pillow he had shotguns rifles handguns everything just literally with within like five or ten feet of the dude in case anything popped off so you know you got two sides of the spectrum here and it was bad enough that three months after they did get married francis left reggie and returned to live with her parents So Reggie suggested a second honeymoon at the end of June. She agreed on June 5th, 1965. And Francis went and Francis went for an appointment at the Hackney Hospital. And she seemed like she was in great spirits. Seems like she was in a great mood and doing well. The following day, she saw Reggie and they booked the tickets at a local travel agent. One month after that, she attempted suicide by taking an overdose of barbiturates. She ended up being revived, and then there was another time after this that she did the same thing, and she was revived again. 
All right, so there are a lot of problems there with their marriage and, you know, what you believe or read or hear about Frances, she has her own set of problems and obviously Reggie and Ronnie have their own problems as well. So there's all this shit going on in, in the romance department. Okay, so one big thing does happen on January 7th, 1965, and this is according to BBC News. I'm going to read straight from the article here. Craze in custody over menace charge. Identical twin brothers Ronald and Reginald Cray have been remanded in custody, charged in connection with running a protection racket in London. The brothers, described in court as company directors of the Glenray Hotel in Seven Sisters Road, North London, have been charged with demanding money with menaces in a county of London between October 1st, 1964 and January 6th, 1965. The twins, who are 31, were distinguishable in court only by their clothes. Ronald wore a dark suit and Reginald wore a light one. They have been remanded in custody for a week to give police time to make more arrests in connection with the case. Officers arrested the brothers at the Glen Ray Hotel last night, and Ronald Cray looked at them when getting arrested and said, You have been after us a long time. Detective Chief Superintendent Frederick Gerard told Old Street Magistrates Court he and a number of other officers had gone to the hotel the previous evening at 21.15. They found the brothers in the basement bar at the hotel where they were cautioned before being taken to Highbury Vale Police Station and later to City Road Police Station. When they were told they would be charged, Ronald Cray said, It's taken you long enough. You have been after us long enough. Superintendent Gerard said he objected to bail because there were two other men involved who had not yet been arrested. He continued and said, If they were granted bail, I feel sure that we would be impeded in our endeavors to trace these men, and that essential witnesses will be intimidated by these men or friends acting for them. Victor Durand, QC, who was defending the brothers, said they did not know from whom they were supposed to have demanded money, nor how much money was involved. He said, one does not know whether the amount is five pounds or fifty pounds. Agreeing to the police request to keep the brothers in custody, Mr. McElliot said, I am satisfied as far as I can be at this stage that there are no other persons at large who are in a position to, and will perhaps be in a better position to, interfere with witnesses and to impede the investigation were you at large. Now, this club was called The Hideaway. Uh, they were released after Lord Boothby, who you remember from Part 1, questions their detention in the House of Lords. Just how far up their influence really went in British society. Like, they had politicians on the hook, they had everybody on the hook, right? Now, one thing you do have to know as well is that for years, Ronnie always envisioned the firm as like a New York mafia-style organization. So in the 1960s, he pretty much got his wish. The American mafia advised Ronnie Cray on how to adopt its principles for London gangs, and a little bit of an alliance was born. This uh, this connection with the mafia did 
heat up tensions with the Richardson gang, which was South London, who was also very, very prominent. And the Cray twins wanted to expand their gambling interests, all right, in the West End with the Mafia's help. But Ronnie felt the Richardson gang was beginning to encroach on their turf. All right, now here's where I've read two different things, all right. How, how this all happened, there was a dude, uh, there was a dude named Burt Rossi, all right. Burt Rossi at one time was locked up with the Crays. And he even went on to say that the Crays were... You couldn't mentor them. They were crazy. You could not mentor them. But he actually did advise them on a lot of things. Well, Burt Rossi had connections to Meyer Lansky in New York and to Angelo Bruno in Philadelphia. And Angelo Bruno was the big one. Angelo Bruno had actually come out to London to meet with the craze. And it's uh, it's said, I couldn't really confirm it, but it's said that Ronnie went to America as well to meet with the five families. And what the interest was, Ronnie wanted to build this organization. He wanted the mafia in to help with the with the gambling rackets and influence and protection and da da da. And Angelo Bruno wanted the craze to basically be some strong arm guys in some of the businesses that the Philadelphia Mafia had out there in London. So it was kind of like a little even trade-off. Now I did read one article, it's only in one place, that they mentioned the mafia didn't want anything to do with Ronnie Cray or Reggie Cray for that matter because they thought they were just too incompetent and too small. Now whether that's true it's really hard telling, but the fact that Angelo Bruno actually had a meeting with them and advised them, and from a lot of local people that I had read on like message forms and shit like that, they were like, yeah, like the craze were involved with the Philadelphia mob, specifically Angelo Bruno. Uh, but they were basically just strong arm guys, you know, they would protect whatever Angelo needed and in turn they would get cuts of West London gambling rackets and shit like that and stuff that Angelo Bruno had interest in. So, I mean, there was a connection there, whether it was strong or not, we really don't know. So then we're going to move forward to November 5th, 1965, a dude named Jack McVitie, he was known as Jack the Hat had been released from prison. He had served a sentence for uh, possessing explosives and carrying an offensive weapon. And when he got out, he stayed out of trouble quite a bit. He worked uh, as a bookmaker's clerk. And he had been living with a woman named Sylvia Bernard. And he had his third child with her. Now where this comes into play is Jack McVitie had met Reggie in prison. He had always wanted to work for the firm... And the thing about Jack the Hat was he was on always on drugs. He was a drunk. When he got out of prison, a guy named Jack Dixon, who was a member of the firm, was given the job of basically following McVitie around to make sure all the little jobs that the twins did give him, you know, were done right. And the reason I bring this up is because this dude's going to get fucking murdered here in a little bit, all right? And it's a, it's pretty pretty brutal shit so a little bit of context for you now on christmas day 1965 shit gets crazy okay there is a guy named george cornell 
He works for the Richardson gang, and there's an altercation between him and Ronnie. And he ends up calling Ronnie Cray a fat poof at the Astor Club. Now, that was not a good thing, okay, because Ronnie was gay. And by the time the story with Lord Boothby broke in the news, which you heard about in part one, Ronnie wasn't, I don't want to say openly gay, but he kind of was. Like, he never denied being gay. He just only denied his relationship with Lord Boothby. A lot of his close friends and family knew that he was, but when the story broke, everybody else found out. But at the same time, nobody would ever confront Ronnie about being gay, which literally, uh, at this point in time, in the mid-1960s, I'm pretty sure, not 100%, but I'm pretty sure this shit was still fucking illegal in England, alright? It was still illegal in a lot of places, whatever. So if somebody asked him, you know, he wouldn't deny it. So when... George Cornell called him a fat poof in this altercation that fucking drove Ronnie crazy. And you're about to find out some shit, right? So a gang war ends up breaking out. And there were two attempts made on Ronnie and Reggie's lives, but nothing ever came of it. Fast forward a few months, March 1966. Things escalated way worse, okay? There's a fight at this bar, and one of the guys in the firm, a guy named Dickie Hart, ended up getting killed. Cornell was supposedly the guy who was responsible for it because he was seen kicking Dickie Hart as he was fucking dying on the ground. I mean, just kicking the shit out of him. But everybody else said, well, so he had disrespected the Cray brothers. And this shit just kept escalating, alright? On March 9th, 1966, Ronnie Cray ends up shooting and killing George Cornell. Like I said, he was a member of the Richardson Gang, which literally was known as the fucking Torture Gang. These dudes were insane. Somebody needs to do a podcast about the Richardson Gang. I'm not gonna be it. I got other shit to do here in the next couple months. So, the kicker about... Where George Cornell got shot, okay? He was uh, he was at the Blind Beggar Pub in Whitechapel. And Ronnie Cray was pretty vocal about not really liking the Blind Beggar Pub. He said in one of their books, Our Story, he said, uh, A bit ugly building in a very poor part of London. Not the sort of place you'd want to take a lady friend for a quiet drink or a business contract to clinch a big deal. It was simply the kind of pub where the poor people in that part of London would go for a drink to drown their sorrows, to have a knees up on Saturday nights and pretend they were feeling happy. And to be honest with you, I fucking kind of like those places. It's kind of the places I hang out now. (laughs) You always catch the best people there. George Cornell was a childhood friend of the craze, okay? He was a pretty prominent criminal in the East End London in the 1960s. He ended up moving to South London, and he, he joined the Richardson gang, which uh, Charlie and Eddie Richardson were the two guys in, in charge of that, that faction. Now, the day before March 9th, on March 8th, there was a shootout at Mr. Smith's, which was a nightclub in Catford, and it involved a guy named Dickie Hart. Like I said, he was shot dead. So this was a huge public shootout, and almost all the Richardson gang were arrested. 
George Cornell just happened to not be present at the club during the shootout, so he did not get arrested. Even though another member of the Richardson gang testified he saw Cornell kicking Hart after he was shot, witnesses would not cooperate with the police because of intimidation and shit like that. And the trial ended up being inconclusive. They couldn't, you know, point to any specific suspect. One of the Richardson gang members, a guy named Mad Frankie Frazier, he ended up being tried for the murder of Dickie Hart, but he was found not guilty. So after this big brawl goes down at Mr. Smith's and all the shit that goes down, okay, George Cornell goes to the hospital, he checks up on his friends, so then he randomly chooses to go to the Blind Beggar Pub in the East End of London to go have a beer. And the Blind Beggar Pub is only about a mile away from Fort Valence, which is the <laughs> what they named their, their house, and that's where the Crays lived. So on March 9th, Cornell and a guy named Albie Woods, they entered the Blind Beggar Pub. They ordered a couple light beers, sat their stools, you know, next to the bar. You'll also read uh, some accounts that say that they were back in the corner, you know, it's there's a few different varying accounts. Here's the one that I've most read and most heard from documentaries and stuff. So, Ronnie Cray was drinking at another pub, and he heard that Cornell was down at the Blind Beggar. So he went there with uh, his driver, a guy named Scotch Jack, whose name was John Dixon, and and his assistant, a guy named Ian Barry. At about 8.30 p.m., Ian Barry and Ronnie Cray go into the Blind Beggar pub. Albie Woods and George Cornell see him walking in, and George Cornell looks at him from across the bar and says, Well, just look who's here. Ian Barry basically as a warning fires two shots into the ceiling, okay? And Cray walks towards Cornell, took out a 9mm Luger, shot him once in the top of the forehead, right above the right eye. And you can actually see the crime scene photos of George Cornell online if you if you want to look that up. So Cornell ends up slump, slumping against like a pillar that was behind him, and the bullet went straight through. So Barry is like, what the fuck? He didn't realize that Ronnie Cray was just going to walk up, not say a fucking word, and shoot this dude in the damn head. He So he fires five more shots into the air as, hey, you guys better not tell anybody, da-da-da-da-da. And him and Ronnie turn around and they go out to a car that was waiting out on the street. Now, as we know, Ronnie Cray is not the most mentally stable person. Like I said, he is diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic. He's fucking crazy, and sometimes he was not very good at taking his meds, alright? So, because of this, like, news about the killing just spread super fast, like, all of East London, you know, Bethnal Green, which is the, the main section that they fucking ruled in East London, like, everybody knew about it. So, the cops went and arrested Ronnie Cray, and one of the members of the firm went and intimidated whatever witnesses might have been wanting to talk and no one said a single word like the barmaid okay was taken in and asked to identify ronnie crane a lineup and she straight up claimed she has no memory of faces so 
there were several eyewitnesses that identified Ronnie Cray as he was walking out of the blind beggar, but nobody would agree to testify against him, and Ronnie ended up getting off, right? Just for the record, there were 32 people in the blind beggar pub when Ronnie Cray walked up and shot George Cornell straight in the forehead, and not one of them said a word. You can say whatever you want to say about the Cray twins. I've seen interviews with members of the Richardson gang who were like, oh, these guys were just low level. They weren't shit, blah, 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 blah. Let me tell you something. When there's 32 people in a bar and you walk up to somebody in that bar and blow their brains out right there in front of everybody and not one person says a word because they are scared of what's going to happen to them, I don't give a shit what you say. That is some kind of power. That is some kind of fear. I mean, people can say what they want, but that's it is what it is. And then we're going to move forward to December 12th, 1966. And we're going to talk a little bit about Frank Mitchell. Now, Frank Mitchell ended up becoming friends with Ronnie Cray when they were both serving time at Wadsworth Prison in the 1950s. So, during Frank Mitchell's trial for attempted murder, Ron hired him a lawyer and he paid for him to have a new suit, you know, get it all tailored and fitted, you know, make sure he did everything like that because Ronnie was trying to get his, at that at that point in time in the 1950s, he was trying to get their name out there, you know, trying to get standing in the underworld. And Frank Mitchell, who was, you know, a criminal and shit, he's like, well, if I help this guy out, you know, maybe it'll make our name sound better, you know. And on top of that, Ron Cray wanted to break Frank Mitchell out of prison. And like I said, he thought that it would help their standing in the underworld and that it would help, you know, get out of prison a little bit faster. Not exactly sure how that whole fucking thing works, but whatever. Now, Reggie Cray straight up was reluctant. He did not want to do it, but he said... If nothing else, it would stick two fingers up to the law. <laughs> like, that's what Reggie Gray said about it. He's like, you know what? If nothing else, man, it's a big fuck you to the cops. So Reggie visited Frank Mitchell at Dartmoor in disguise and told him about the plan to break him out of prison. I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into Frank Mitchell here, and this is straight from Wikipedia. I'm not even going to do research on this because it crazes enough research, okay? At the age of nine, he stole a bicycle. He was taken to juvenile court and put on probation. Now, Frank Mitchell was extremely strong. Like, he could, they said he could lift um, two grown men, one in each arm, off the floor. All right, so the dude was crazy fucking strong. And he had a penchant for violence. They always said Frank Mitchell was not very smart. They said he had the mentality of like a 13-year-old or so, you know, possibly younger. So from the age of like 17 on, Frank Mitchell was in and out of prison. And this dude would beat up guards. He'd beat up fellow inmates every time he was in there. In 1955, he was actually diagnosed as being quote-unquote mentally defective. And he was sent to a psychiatric hospital. In 1957, he escaped. He ended up being recaptured, but of course, attacked police with two meat cleavers. 
Then he escaped again, broke into a private home, and held a married couple hostage with an axe. And this is how he got the nickname, the Mad Axeman. So in October of 1958, he was sentenced to life imprisonment for robbery and violence. And he was sent to Dartmoor in 1962. And this is where he had met, uh, you know, Ronnie Cray. So there's a little bit of background on Frank Mitchell. This is the kind of guy that we're fucking dealing with. So on December 12th, 1966, he was in a small work party. Mitchell asked the one guard on duty for permission to feed some nearby um, horses, some ponies. And the guard was like, yeah, that's fine, okay. So he walked over, and there was a road right there, and there was a fucking getaway car literally just waiting for him, and it was Albert Donahue and a guy named Mad Teddy Smith and Billy Exley, and they were waiting for him, and they drove him to London, and, like, he fucking straight up escaped without any problem whatsoever. So the craze put him up in a flat in Barking Road, East Ham. It was uh, it was about five hours before anybody even reported Frank Mitchell was missing. And when he escaped, like, this shit was huge news, okay? It was a huge, like, politicized event, basically because it rose the questions of, like, why do we have such relaxed security for a man who was literally referred to as Britain's most violent convict at the time. So this huge manhunt starts, okay? You got 200 cops, you got 100 Royal Marines, you got the Royal Air Force helicopter searching everywhere for this guy. Mitchell ends up writing to the national newspaper, and his basic plea agreement, what he's trying to get, is he wants a release date. This shit was literally printed in in the Times and Daily Mirror. Like, he doesn't want to do life in prison. He wants a release date. So, the Home Secretary at the time, Roy Jenkins, he's like, I'm not fucking negotiating with an escaped felon, dude. I'm not reviewing your status. Like, if you come back or if we catch you, then maybe I'll check it out and maybe I'll grant you a release date. But you're out of your fucking mind if you think I'm going to negotiate with you. So, Mitchell is not, he's not right in the head. Besides the fact he's physically stronger than fuck too, okay? So, he ends up becoming like this huge problem for the craze. And like I said, he's got the short temper, he's extremely strong, and according to the courts and the uh, prison system, he's mentally defective, alright, he literally held a couple hostage with a fucking axe, this dude's nickname was the Mad Axeman, and the Krays are starting to realize they probably fucked up by breaking this dude out of prison, they found him super hard to control, so... He would not give himself up. He wouldn't turn himself in and return to prison, but he's in this flat or apartment, and he's basically in hiding. Like, he can't leave. The craze will not allow him to leave or go anywhere because there's usually only going to be trouble that follows when he does. And if he gets caught, then they're going to know, because he's in East London in Cray territory, that they more than likely had something to do with his escape. On top of that... Mitchell felt insulted that Reggie had only visited 
him once in person, you know, because they would just send members of the firm, you know, to talk to him, make sure he was good to go. And he wasn't allowed to visit his parents who lived nearby. So Frank Mitchell is getting super agitated and he starts making threats against the Cray twins. So they're like, okay, let's do something to smooth this over. Let's make this guy happy for, you know, the short amount of time that we can or as long as we have to, whatever the case may be. Why they even broke this fucking guy out of prison is beyond me. It's probably, it's, you know, Ronnie's fucking idea. And contrary to popular belief, like, if you watch the movie Legend, all right, it always shows, like, Reggie Cray being the calm, collective, cool dude who's in charge. In all honesty, like, Ronnie was calling the shots more often than not. And that is a scary thought. So, in order to make Frank Mitchell a little happier, they bring him a woman, uh, and she was a nightclub hostess, okay? So, they bring him this woman to basically keep him company, you know, da-da-da, and he fucking falls in love with this chick, all right? And this just makes the situation so much worse. There's only one thing we can really do at this point to get rid of this situation and that's to kill frank mitchell so on december 24th 1966 frank mitchell is led to the back of a van by albert donahue and he was thinking that he was getting taken to a safe house in the countryside and that's where he was going to meet up with ronnie cray and then he realized that uh lisa eliza prescott wasn't going to be coming with him and this is the chick that he fell in love with so you know, there's an another argument that starts because of this. So Donahue is like, no, man, it's going to be way safer in the countryside. Just get in the van. We'll take care of everything. So what Albert Donahue told him was this, and this is, uh, he talked about this in his book called The Enforcer, 2002. It's a great book. I highly suggest it. But he told Frank Mitchell this. Well, the only way to do this is to think what's going to happen if you get a stopper on the way down. If the old bill pull you, which is the old, you know, the prison, we're going to go right into one, and she's going to be involved. She'll either be hurt or nicked. You don't need that. So what we'll do, we'll set you off first, and I'll follow up with Lisa half an hour later. We'll get you there all nice and safely. You'll be with the colonel, and Merry Christmas. So Frank Mitchell gets in the in the van, and inside the van are a lot of dudes. And two of the guys are Alfie Gerard, and the other one is a dude named Freddie Foreman. And we haven't talked much about Freddie Foreman, but this episode, you're going to learn about this dude. Because he was legit a gangster, alright? He did the dirty work. So when he gets in the van, when Frank Mitchell gets in the van, Alfie Gerard and Freddie Foreman, they got revolvers. Once the doors close, they started up the van and they just started shooting Frank Mitchell. All right. And Albert Donahue says that he's pretty sure 12 shots were fired before Mitchell died. Dude was shot 12 fucking times before he died. And here's what Donahue said about the whole thing. They just kept popping the man. He comes off the casing on his knees. Then he falls back, and these bullets are going all over him. 
Then he goes still, and one of the guys, Foreman, leans over and puts three more shots in around the heart. You can see the shirt jumping. He's been lying quiet for a while. He's got to be dead. Then all of a sudden there's a groan, and he lifts his head up again. I don't know what they call it after death, the body relaxing or gas escaping, but then there's another groan. So Gerard says, he ain't fucking dead. Give him another one. I'm empty. Yeah, I'm pleased to hear one guy's empty. At least I've got one gun to deal with now. But then Foreman goes and puts the gun right up behind Frank's ear and pop, pop. That's the last two shots that's fired into him. Fucking wild shit, right? And um, what he Albert Donahue was referring to is like, basically, I've only got one gun to deal with. He was the guy who got rid of like the murder weapons and shit like that. Okay, he was an enforcer. So he did a lot of dirty work too. So Frank Mitchell's body was never found. Freddie Foreman later said that Mitchell's body was bound with chicken wire, weighted down, and dumped into the English Channel. Reggie Cray would later go on to say uh, he did an interview, I believe it was a couple weeks before he died, Reggie Cray did. You can actually find it on YouTube, it's super fascinating. Uh, but he said that uh, breaking Frank Mitchell out of prison was probably one of the biggest mistakes he ever made. Like he doesn't, he can't even believe he did that shit. They were arrested, charged, and the Cray twins were acquitted of his murder. Freddie Foreman, like I said, was a friend of the Crays. He got rid of a lot of bodies for him. He said in his autobiography, Respect, that he shot Mitchell as a favor to the twins. And Freddie Foreman actually repeated his confession in a 2000 documentary. And he was re-arrested and questioned by police. But the uh, Crown Prosecution Service announced that it would not be reopening the case due to the um, double jeopardy law. So even up until 2000, like almost 40 years after that happened, Freddie Foreman was, like I said, re-arrested and questioned about this shit. So, I mean, some people respect the craze. Some people don't. You can say whatever you want. Like... They were pretty legit. So, by 1967, Reggie's been married for about two years, all right? There's a lot of difficulties, okay? And I mentioned Frances Shea's diary earlier on, and she had claimed, you know, it was every day. It was drunken, verbal abuse. She actually tried to get her marriage annulled because she claimed that it was never consummated, it's going to go a lot of different ways, okay? So Reggie Cray, it was admittedly bisexual. Like when he gets to prison, we'll talk about it in part three. I mean, he had a, a lover in prison, you know, a couple different ones. Um, the people who say that he was full gay, like didn't didn't have sex with women, obviously don't know about the paternity suit that he had to fight against at one point in time. So like the dude did have sex with women, okay? He's totally bisexual. So her saying that it wasn't consummated, I mean, I want to believe that. I really, really do. I'm not calling her a liar by any means, but... Maybe he had interests elsewhere, and there's actually a lot of speculation that he married Francis to actually get to her brother. 
But at the end of the day, her brother was already working for the firm and already working for Reggie before that. So I don't really know why that would even be a scenario. But anyway, there's a lot of back and forth about that, okay? So on the morning of June 7th, 1967, in the morning, her brother took her a cup of tea. And this is something that he did every morning. And he put it on her bedside table. And he says that she seemed to be still sleeping, you know, and he went out to work. And Frances Shea never woke up. She committed suicide. You know, it's it's sad because I personally, judging by Reggie's actions after everything happened, I really do, and this is just personal opinion, I really do think that he loved her a lot. I mean, whether the drunken verbal abuse is accurate, whether the marriage was consummated, I don't know. But all I know is that he was smitten with this girl. He tried marrying her back in 1961. You know, they were dating but clear back then. You know, they had dated off and on. And I really do believe that he loved her, but... She was not happy, and like I said, Reggie Cray, you know, he points out in his book that she had a lot of problems already, you know, that she was severely depressed, and this and that and the other, but there's also the side factor, okay, you got, there's actually more than one side factor, one of which is that the Cray's mom had it organized to have her killed and then make it look like a suicide. You know, she was getting more attention than her. I don't believe that for a second. I really don't. But one of Reggie Cray's lovers in prison, guy who did three years with him, um, I mean, there's plenty of documentation. He was definitely associated with Reggie Cray. He was definitely a lover of Reggie Cray while they were in prison. He says that one night Reggie Cray broke down and started crying and it was because of Francis. And he said that Ronnie had actually killed Francis in a jealous rage and they covered it up to make it look like a suicide. Now, I'm not sure how you can do that with a barbiturate overdose. I mean, you're, you're treading on a line here, but it's not out of the realm of possibilities at all. So... You also have to take into account the source, all right? So there's a lot of factors going on there. But either way, Frances died, and uh, her parents told Reggie that their daughter's last wish had been to revert to her maiden name. But Reggie insisted that she be buried under her married name and wear her white satin wedding dress. And this, like, her parents fucking hated the craze her mom did to the core their dad probably not so much but elsie shea who was francis's mom uh persuaded the undertaker to put the corpse in tights and a slip so that even when she wore the wedding dress the least amount of her body as possible would be touching the wedding dress so basically it was like, yeah, you can put her in that wedding dress, but I'm going to put her in tights and a slip 
and her the least amount of her skin as possible is going to be touching that fucking thing because according to her mom she fucking hated that wedding dress and she hated marrying the crate you know she hated being married to reggie her uh, funeral took place at St. James the Great Church in Bethnal Green Road, and this is the same church that uh, she had married Reggie in about two years earlier. And, I mean, Francis's funeral was a huge, huge fucking thing. And supposedly her funeral was the equivalent of about 30,000 pounds today, which... You know, in American dollars, roughly the same, maybe 25 to 30 grand. You know, Reggie ordered, you know, huge wreaths, all these floral wreaths, like all kinds of shit, you know, that that he had ordered for the funeral. And some people do debate that her death actually catapulted Reggie into excessive drinking and just you know, he deteriorated into nothing. It, it Basically, it just tore him the fuck down. Like, he started drinking heavily. He was starting to get more out of control. Starting to show some fucking Ronnie Cray traits, to be honest with you. But this shit just broke him. Reggie would visit her grave. Sometimes, several times a day. And even when Reggie was let out... For Ronnie's funeral when Ronnie died, he still got permission to visit her grave and he would be kissing the tombstone. When his older brother Charlie died, Reggie again got permission to go to her tombstone. He was photographed, you know, kissing the tombstone. There are some rumors that Reggie actually still held on to the tickets for their holiday, their vacation until the day he died like he would not let them go he just held on to him so now we're gonna jump into 1967 and we're gonna talk about nipper reed we talked about him a little bit in part one we're gonna talk about him more here and in part three he is the go-to cop in the that's trying to bring down the craze so he started going after the twins a little bit harder in 1967 but he couldn't get past the fact that nobody would fucking talk to the cops, let alone anybody trying to fuck with the Cray twins. So he's not getting very much information to work with. But by the end of 1967, Reed had actually started building up enough evidence against the Crays, and he did have some witness statements that were incriminating, but... If he was going to take it to court, there was no way he was going to get a conviction out of anything that he had. So, he's still on the trail. And now, before we get into the murder of Jack the Hat McVitie, we are going to take a break and listen to a word from our sponsor. So, take this few minutes here, go get you another beer, take a break, whatever. I'll meet you back here in a few minutes. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. As you guys all know, unsolved true crime, histories, mysteries, paranormal, that is all my passion. But every now and then I do need to take an occasional break, so when I feel like I need some kind of mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is of course Best Fiends. 
The reason I like it is because I'm still engaging my brain. I'm still trying to put puzzle pieces together and figure things out. But it's still a casual game and anybody can play. But it is made for adults. I personally have made it to level 145 at this point, and I really don't even play that much. That's just how in-depth it is. Once you get on there, you just want to keep playing. You want to keep beating those levels. And one of the cool things about it, too, is that I play with my kids. Both my boys love this game, so it's something that we can kind of challenge each other at. It's also super engaging. There's lots of bright colors. There's all these cute little characters that you can collect and build up. And you can also share your progress via social media. So you can sit there and challenge your friends. And like I said, you got all all these bugs. You got all these slugs going at it back and forth. Another cool thing is that they update their game monthly. So there's always something new to go to. There's always a new event, something going on. And you don't even need the internet to play. So like I said, if you want to engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters, trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Alright, so Jack the Hat McVitie by 1967... He's living in Layton, and he's a loudmouth drunk. He was dealing drugs. He's taking a shitload of them, and he's getting arrogant, abusive. He's threatening the Cray twins, and he's causing a shitload of other trouble with a lot of their friends. And at one point in time, he had caused a shitload of damage in Freddie Foreman's club, And had to be thrown out. And this was embarrassing as fuck to the twins, okay? He also tried to shoot Tommy Flanagan at the Regency. At one point in time, he had uh, cut a guy in the basement of the club. And then he went upstairs and wiped the bloody knife on a woman's dress. Now, this is the Cray Twins fucking club. You don't do shit like that. So one evening, he had been stopped from entering the Regency because he was too drunk. And he came back later and threatened to shoot John Barry and his brother, who were the owners of the club, with a shotgun. Now, they were paying protection to their silent partners, who were Ronnie and Reggie Cray, and went to them and said, Hey man, can you fucking sort this out? This dude is absolutely nothing but trouble. We're paying you money for fucking protection. You're the silent partners. Figure it out. So the twins are getting complaints about Jack McVitie all the fucking time. And they had warned him on so many different occasions. And the dude would not fucking listen. And he also owed Ronnie and Reggie a pretty large amount of money. Now, Jack wasn't part of the firm. But he did work for the twins occasionally. So in 1967, Ronnie Cray paid Jack McVitie 500 pounds in advance to kill ex-friend and business partner Leslie Payne, and he promised Jack that he would give another 500 when the job was finished. And this was because Ronnie Cray was thinking that Leslie Payne was about ready to rat everybody out and send them all to prison. So McVitie and a friend, a guy named Billy Exley, 
They went to shoot Payne and they did not succeed. Um, Exley was a driver and he had a shitload of heart trouble. Jack McVitie was way addicted to fucking drugs. He was addicted to speed hardcore. So Exley, he pretty much like freaked out when Jack McVitie pulled out the handgun and Exley actually and Exley's words were the size of a bleeding cannon. So they got to Leslie Payne's house. McVitie pounded on his front door and Leslie Payne wasn't there and his wife opened the door and she says, he's not here. Jack McVitie says, oh, that's all right. And they ended up leaving. So, but instead of repaying the money back to Ronnie, Jack McVitie kept it. And that pissed Ronnie Cray off. So in the fall of 1967, Reggie was encouraged by his brother, and this is four months after the suicide of his wife, Frances, to kill Jack the Hat McVitie. And like I said, he was a minor member. He wasn't even really a member of the firm. He was just a guy who did shit for him every now and then. And like I said, there was a $1,000 contract that was never fulfilled and 500 bucks that was never paid back to Ronnie Cray for the failed attempt on Leslie Payne. So on October 28th, 1967, Jack McVitie is drinking at the Regency Club, all right? And Reggie paid him a visit, and the pair ended up going to the Chinese restaurant. And he told Jack McVitie again about the shit that he's doing, you know, and the whole thing with the berries. It's like, dude, you can't threaten to shoot my fucking friends with shotguns. You can't be all hopped up on speed. You can't be fucking cutting people in the basement of my clubs. You know, this is making me fucking look bad. You're going to end up getting us all in trouble. So Jack told him, he's like, those bastards wouldn't let me in the club. And Reggie told him, you know, just like he did a shitload of times before. He's like, dude, you're fucking, you're out of line. You can't be doing this shit. Like you're literally upsetting all the friends. You're upsetting all the business associates. You, you got to get your shit together. The meeting was whatever. Okay. Reggie left. And he had the feeling when he left that he did all he could to let Jack know how Ronnie felt about his attitude. Because Ronnie was the catalyst for this shit. Reggie knew that he was wasting his time. And Reggie was pretty much under the assumption that I'm here wasting my time talking to a guy who's not going to fucking listen. He's going to be even... More of a problem in the future, there's really only one thing we can do about this. So the next day, Jack McVitie was invited to a party at 97 Evering Road in Stock Newington, London. And there were supposedly a shitload of, you know, uh, his associates and their families. And he was told there was going to be a party. So the craze had arrived to the party first and they spent like the first hour and they were just basically telling all the guests to leave because the party was going on. The, the party was there, but the craze showed up and they're like, hey, you know, you guys need to kind of clear out a little bit. We're going to handle some fucking business here. So when Jack McVitie gets into the party, into the house, he sees Ronnie Cray sitting down in the front room. Now, 
I didn't live in London in the 60s. But just from my research, I'm just going to say this. If I piss Ronnie Cray off, and a couple days later, I'm invited to a party, and I walk into this house, and Ronnie Cray is one of the only people sitting in the living room staring at me, I know that I'm probably going to die. You know what I'm saying? Or I'm going to get tortured some sort of way. So, Ronnie goes up to him and just starts calling him all these names. And he takes a piece of broken glass and he cuts McVitie in the face with it. And then this huge argument breaks out. And it gets escalated and escalated. And Reggie comes out and he has his handgun. And the whole point of this was Reggie was going to take this handgun and just put McVitie, just put him down. He was going to put two in his fucking head right when he walked in the door. Okay, so he goes to pull the trigger, and he pulls it twice, and the gun failed. Like, it totally, uh, it just didn't discharge. So, one of the crazed cousins, who's a member of the firm, Ronnie Hart, comes up behind Jack McVitie, holds him in this bear hug, and Ronnie Cray hands Reggie a carving knife, and he stabbed McVitie repeatedly in the face, chest, and stomach, and then he takes the blade and shoves it, right through his neck and just starts twisting it all right and even when McVitie was laying on the floor dying Reggie still just kept twisting that knife into his neck it was pretty fucked man like that's pretty crazy shit okay so these two guys these two other guys Tony and Chris okay another guy named uh Bender this is his last name Ronnie Bender they basically cleaned up the evidence and tried to get rid of the body but McVitie's body was too big to fit in the boot of the car so the body was wrapped up and put in the back seat of the car so Tony he ends up driving this car with the body and Chris and Bender followed behind okay and they get past Blackwall Tunnel and Chris actually lost Tony's car so he sped up and he's looking around for like 15 minutes and they eventually found Tony and he was outside St. Mary's Church and he had uh, he had run out of gas with McVitie's body still inside the car. And they had planned to take the body to the south side of London and dump it there so that the Richardson gang, they would get all the blame. It would make them look bad and all the all the blame would be pointed towards them because McVitie was a known Cray associate. So, and the three guys ended up just going home. And Bender ends up getting on the phone with Charlie Cray, and he's like, hey man, we dealt with it, it's all taken care of. But then the Crays found out where the fucking body was, and they were like, you, ne you need to move this shit now. You cannot leave this laying in a churchyard, you know, like, what the fuck are you guys thinking? And not to mention, that church was very close to their friend, Freddie Foreman's place so they didn't want to incriminate Freddie Foreman at all you know he had a he had a pub there in uh, Southwark so they asked him they're like dude can you please dispose of this body so the body is still in the backseat of this car and Foreman finds the car 
and breaks into it and he drove the body to New Haven where he had a uh, he had it wrapped in chicken wire and dumped in the English Channel. And there's also another report that says that the body had been buried in a newly dug grave at uh, Gravesend Cemetery in Kent. You know, e- either way, the body was never found. But at the same time, this started turning a lot of people against the craze, all right? And not only just regular people, the firm. They didn't think that McVitie deserved to die, and they realized that if this could happen to McVitie, that it could happen to them. You know, Reggie committed a very public murder, like literally in front of a shitload of people, and it was gruesome and it was brutal. And like I said, like a lot of the members of the firm didn't think that Jack McVitie deserved to die. So some of these members start thinking about their futures and they're like, fuck, man, the craze are going to go down eventually unless we do something about it one way or another. So a plot was hatched to murder the Cray twins. Freddie Foreman came out and he said, yeah, man, he's like, we sat down and decided that the Cray twins needed to die. And if they didn't, we were all going to end up going down eventually. And Freddie Foreman's whole thing was not only Jack McVitie, but a guy named Billy Gentry. He always thought Billy Gentry was a good guy. And Ronnie had called him one day and said, you know, be ready to dispose of this body. Freddie Foreman was like, you know, Billy Gentry is actually a pretty good dude, man. Like, I've done a lot of dirt with this guy. Just forget about it and calm down. And he said that Ronnie was just fucking out of his mind. He was insane. And he was certifiably insane as well. And that was, for Foreman, the turning point. So he held this meeting, which was called the Council of War, at Simpsons in the Strand. And he had a shitload of London's top gang leaders there. And he said, I reported that night back to my pals and said there's only one thing for it. I thought the twins should be ironed out. The two of them should be shot because they were dangerous to everybody. That was my thought and several other people. If the twins hadn't been arrested, that's what would have happened. This was on the cards. Now, Freddie Foreman did end up going and serving 10 years as as an accomplice to murder, you know, when the craze uh, went down in 1969. He did a 10-year stretch, and then he also went on to say, It would have been much better if the craze had been ironed out earlier and saved a lot of trouble. They were a danger to everybody. They were out of control. People wouldn't have gone to prison and would have saved 250 years being dished out. People would be alive today. And then Lenny Hamilton, who we talked about in part one, he actually died just this last October. And he was in on that shit too, man. And he straight up said in an interview last summer, I believe, he said, I'm glad they're six feet under. It's the best place they could be. They were two horrible bastards. People feared the craze. They were bloody animals. Lenny Hamilton, you know, from part one, he was the one that was almost had his eyes burned out with that hot poker by Ronnie. So they made a lot of enemies in their own organization along the way as well. So early in 1968, all right, the Crays ended up hiring this dude named Alan Bruce Cooper. 
and he sent Paul Elvey to Glasgow to buy explosives for a car bomb. The police detained him in Scotland, and he confessed to being involved in three murder attempts. And the evidence was weakened by Cooper, and he said that he was an agent for the U.S. Treasury Department investigating links between the American Mafia and the Cray Gang. Now, these three murder attempts, you know, the 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 failed murders were his first attempt to pretty much put blame on the craze. Cooper was being employed by one of Nipper Reed's superior officers, okay? Like, they were trying to use him as a trap, but the craze ended up avoiding it. But at this point in time, it was too late, man. The murders were a turning point. The investigation into Ronnie and Reggie Cray just gets more pressure than ever, and members of the firm finally start talking about the twins to some investigators. And that's where we're going to stop for now. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed part two. Here's ways you can get a hold of me, my social media. I got the Facebook page. I got the Facebook group. Follow me on Instagram at mysterious underscore podcast. I got Twitter, which is at podcast MC. A whole bunch of others. I'm literally on every social media, dude. Just type it in. You know what I mean? You can email me justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com get a hold of me there yeah so that's about all i got like i said i'm going to end this episode with the song from ace king called underdog hope you guys enjoy it and until next time see you folks on the flip side Nobody here is near my level. A lot of niggas talking, so you know I got some score to settle. Niggas got me in the booth for the young, like I'm Carmelo. Got me feeling like Superman. This shit ain't hard to handle. They wanna see me with my back against the wall with nothing at all. These niggas don't wanna see me ball. They want me to fall. These niggas don't want me taking off. They all want me gone. These niggas really think I'm soft. They know my shit is ball status, raw status, and just like my dick, I'm way above average. I ball out, nigga, like Luka Doncic with the Mavericks. So if you say the wrong shit, my nigga, I'm a spaz quick. Hey, all my life, I've been an underdog. They don't want to see me rise, they want to see me fall. I put my hands up, nigga, I'm ready for a brawl. I want all the